welcome to the On The Map podcast. I'm David Beats, and today I spoke with Mark Coyman of the Experience Insight Group, and he talked about online retail and the consumer experience of brick and mortar stores. Also talked with George Day, our data analyst here at Plain Grocery, about how Amazon is expanding into physical stores for their for grocery stores. Uh, so I'm excited uh, about this podcast today, and um, now let's jump right in to our conversation with Mark Coyman at Experience Insight Group. Uh, Mark, can you tell us a little bit about what you do? Sure, happy to do so. I, um, I, I started up Experience Insight Group. We are a broad-based strategic business consulting group. We, we look at whether it is large corporations, they could be entrepreneurial startups. Uh, we also work with politicians, um, but it is one in which it is a business going through transition. So I'm glad we're doing our, our conversation today because the market is in the midst of transition, mm -hmm. but their companies often challenged in terms of uh, either internal issues with the brand or the marketplace. And most of our interaction is with C-level management. Okay. So while marketing in its conventional set does play a role, we're looking at broad business issues. Uh, and, and I've been in the business now for, God help us all, almost 40 years. And I started out on the agency side and then was client side. And so I started this company up in 03 and we've been in business ever since. Okay, very cool, very cool. Now, do you work with like focus groups or is a lot of it kind of your kind of experience with the brand and, and that kind of thing? Well, we use a number of, of tools, if you will, to look at the marketplace, to look at a business internally. Okay. Uh, obviously in the process of understanding the consumer voice, the consumer perception, how do they define what is the brand experience? And right. that's key because we're very much driven by what the consumers define, not necessarily what the marketing or the, or the company itself defines. Um, okay. So okay. Yeah, part of what you said is true. We do use a number of resource tools. Um, focus groups, we use a variation of them. I laugh, right. I was client side with Time Warner before I started up the company. And uh, in one year I did over 200 focus groups around the world. And I decided it was uh, elected to, to uh, observe that it was much more contrived uh, opinion sets because okay. people didn't know one another and they would just voice whatever the heck they thought the group wanted to hear. And so we do go out into the marketplace and we use a form called coffeehouse chats and pub chats. Okay. Uh, that's Very one cool. of the tools that we use. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'll, I'll have to tell you a little bit about, about an experience that I had with a focus group. Um, here in just a little bit, but that's that's really interesting. So, um, George, why don't you tell us a little bit about um, what you do with with Plan Grocery and um, kind kind of what you've been seeing recently? Sure. Uh, thanks, David, and thanks for joining us, Mark. So, I am the data specialist with Plan Grocery. I handle all the day to day um, data monitoring updating points, adding points, um, seeing what the trends are on a day-to-day -day basis, really, with grocery store development activity. Um, we were on fire leading up to this 
crazy COVID-19, um, I don't spread or virus, however you want to put it, but over the past two, three weeks, naturally, there's been a, a little bit of a slowdown, but a little bit to my surprise, there's still been a decent amount of activity. We, we saw just the other day that Amazon was uh, the front runner in an auction for four uh, fairway stores up in the New York area, the New York market. So, I mean, they're still actively pursuing locations for their grocery store brand, which they recently announced back in the, the fall of 2019. So that, that right there, right in the middle of this crisis was um, promising. Um, the As far as the nationwide activity, it's, we're still seeing stuff going on. I think a lot of um, stores that were maybe in the middle of construction towards the end of construction, I feel like it, it's dependent on that local government and their ordinances, but they're going to allow that construction to continue and finish the stores out simply because there's such a need for groceries right now. And if a store is close to the finish line, get it done. So people have an, even another option for a place to shop. Um, yeah. So that, that's what I'm seeing right now. I feel like a lot of location that locations that were in the plan proposed stage, maybe dirt hasn't been moved yet or just it just started. Those have come to a, a temporary halt while we get through this craziness. But I'm pretty confident that once this passes, everything is just going to return to normal from a development standpoint and maybe even with more um aggression because people are going to be hungry to get stuff done yeah absolutely yeah that yeah that totally makes sense um i've got a friend that does some construction work for um, walmarts and he told me that they are really pushing back changes to existing stores um right now or, or any kind of like major construction projects and they're really focused on kind of operations and you know getting groceries to people and kind of focused a lot on delivery and, and, and that kind of thing. Um, as far as, as far as Amazon, I know Mark, we talked a little bit earlier, some about, um, different, you know, um, delivery services and, and Amazon and, and stuff like that. I think you mentioned some different stats. I think it was about, um, what grocery or what totally kind of e-commerce and then kind of what the grocery breakout was with that. Yes. Yes. Uh, if you talk to the standard person walking on the streets, they're going to think that the internet commands the retail marketplace. Even within the framework of some of the top management that we work with, they also think that, shoot, the internet's 40, 50% of the marketplace. Right. At the end of last year, it accounted for 11.4% of retail sales in the United States, period. So almost nine out of every 10 sales takes place on, or excuse me, in person. In person, right. Online. On top of that, within the framework of sales, grocery store sales is all the way down. It is number seven on the list of volume of sales. So it's not the top sales. Clothing, shoes, electronics, house and home goods, 
uh, home accessories and furniture, that way outpaces where it is with groceries. So grocery is limited. In fact, a very interesting statistic is that of total sales volume, and this is a new release that came out, it came out in um, the end of 2019, Mm -hmm. Grocery store sales accounted for two point, excuse me, digital online grocery store sales represented 2.3% of sales of grocery stores. Okay. So I would strongly, you know, when we talk about this and what we talk about that's going on right now, obviously what's happening in the marketplace is quote, not natural. This is mm -hmm. not, this is one where we have a lot of different factors that are playing a role. And so right now, digital is accessible to people, but I, I will even contend that as much as digital is accessible, there's a lot of people even now in the midst of this pandemic, whether it's, it's not even just in the United States. They had a big story in Wall Street Journal about stuff taking place in Europe today. Right. But it is where people have to socialize and be around other people psychologically and no. so the whole idea of even going to a store versus sitting there and keying it digitally online, that becomes a more emotional component of the experience of the grocery store. So we can't dismiss all of that. The other part of the statistics that I found very interesting, and this was published, this came out in a paper that was just released. I'm going to see who the source was on it, but it literally just came out. Uh, in terms of what are the top products that Amazon is selling right now in the midst of this pandemic, and their number, <laughs> the number five top products, toilet paper, obviously, <laughs> and I have to laugh because I'm one of the ones that went to Amazon to go right. see what the heck they had in terms of toilet paper selection. Most of it was sold out. This was three days, four days ago. Toilet yeah. paper, number one, face masks, number two, digital thermometers, cloth diapers, and God love us all, Under Armour workout um sportswear so right. yeah i guess i guess when they're at home and they don't have to go to an office or whatever a lot of the wonderful uh millennials that are out there and gen xers out, that are out there just want to dress very very ultra casual and uh i'm sure taking care of the kids is high energy too yeah exactly exactly well so do you see the current increase in grocery delivery uh during this pandemic as temporary or do you think there'll be carryover afterwards when things kind of get back to normal I, I, I contend that it is very, very temporary. I do not believe that we are going to see a radical change in behavior. Now you have to ask the fundamental question, and this obviously comes up in everybody's mindset. Well, online digital sales are gonna grow. I mean, shoot, they went from, they went from almost one percentage point. They were 10.4% this time last year Right. to 11.4% at the end of fourth quarter, okay? The percentage of that increase was almost 15%. It was 14.9%. Right. So you hear a statistic, oh my God, that market's grown by 15%. It's going to explode tomorrow. I do believe there will be continued growth. However, key factors that drive it, again, on a consumer level, You've got 90%, almost 90% going in store. Secondly, from the retailer level, the average price of an online digital sale is only about maybe around two thirds of what the total price is of an in-store sale. So the mm -hmm. volume level of that, and then lastly in that mix, 
you can go and you can say, well, let's take Amazon, let's take eBay, let's take some of the digital uh, retailers that are in existence today right. and say, well, shoot, they're going to go in there and absorb that. They're challenged with shipping costs. And even now, as I sometimes will say, you might have a kid and the kid says, hey, mom, this is what I want for dinner. And mom says, okay, let me go and order it online. Some of that can be delivered to the house, but more cases than not, the shipping delivery is getting, getting delayed at least a day, if not more, in terms of the shipping cycle. So the need level of addressing it in the immediacy is out of the mix in more cases than not. Social dynamic of interfacing, the economic dynamic from the part of the retailers in terms of what's gonna stimulate the, the greater revenue in store or shopping online, and, um, you know, I, I don't see enough that's there telling me that we're going to see a, a tremendous, a tremendous surge. Right. I, well, go ahead. I'm, go ahead. Yeah. Well, I, I was just thinking, you know, as, as we think about online, you know, it's interesting that Amazon is starting to build brick and mortar stores, Correct. Um, you know, Correct. and, and I was just wondering, you know, with, with you, George, you know, with what you're tracking in the platform, can you tell us a little bit about kind of what you've seen with, with their new stores and maybe like square footage and maybe a little bit about Amazon Go? Yeah, so <clears throat> I alluded to this during my introduction a little bit how Amazon kind of exploded on the scene last fall saying, hey, we want to we want to develop some brick and mortar 35,000 give or take square feet grocery stores. Um, it was early October where they announced this and they said they were going to focus on some particular cities, um, Los Angeles, Chicago, Philadelphia, Seattle, to name a few, with Los Angeles being the uh, focus. They wanted their first store to open there. And so they, word got out that they were targeting a vacant Babies R Us, Toys R Us store in Woodland Hills, California, right outside of LA. <clears throat> and it's gonna be around 35,000 square feet. And then through the grapevine, the people we know local to the area in LA, we've discovered that they're doing the same with the vacant babies, Toys R Us, and uh, just outside of Irvine, California, which is just outside of LA. Okay. Uh, and that's under construction. Um, and we don't know when exactly that's going to open the quarter for either of them. They've been very secretive about their timelines, but we do know that those are under construction Amazon grocery stores. And then we also know that they've announced they're moving forward with a store in the Chicago area. I think it was Naperville or Napersville. That'll also be roughly 35,000 square feet. I don't, believe that is under construction under construction yet it was supposed to start soon but of course the COVID-19 situation temporarily is altering that but anyway that's right that's moving forward um, then in Seattle they're doing a test run well they've had these Amazon Go stores which were C stores or convenience stores that were roughly 2,000 square feet that they've had in some major uh, metro markets over the years that are cashierless. That's the whole concept. And <clears throat> they've had reasonable success with that. So they decided to try to open a 10,000 square foot store in Seattle with that same cashierless technology. And they were going to 
kind of gauge how that store goes to see if they want to expand that. But again, Seattle is kind of ground zero for all this uh, stuff going on right now. So I'm, I'm assuming that's on hold for the time being. But I also read the other day that they were going to try and sell that uh, cashierless technology to other grocery stores, which is interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't know if you guys saw that or not, but that, yeah, uh, that. that could yeah. be a game changer for sure. So clearly if they're looking to sell that technology, then they've had in that limited amount of time that that go store was open, a 10,000 square foot grocery store, they must've had some success if they're confident enough to uh, put the, the technology out there and sell it. Mark, what do you, what do you think about these Amazon locations and, and possibly people, you know, licensing that go technology? My gut level tells me that there's elements of it that they may create an opportunity within a very defined niche. Segment. Right. Okay. okay. I'm not even so sure that I would even go so far as to say it is a specific quote demographic or age group or generational group. I think it may be more from an experiential standpoint where an individual doesn't have very much time to go to the grocery store and wants to dash in, dash out. It is probably one where what they're needing to get is a limited selection yeah. uh, and variety. Yeah. I think that, that the human element is so, so, so critical. I can't, I, I'm laughing as I'm hearing parts of that because of people, the store, um, there's elements of that where functionally you think, well, what about security? Take that, take that completely off the table. What's the experience, experiential dynamic for the consumer that's going in there and shopping? And a lot of people, when they think they go to the grocery store, well, they're just pulling stuff off the shelves. But the key thing that you got to keep in mind is that even from a business operational standpoint, the biggest revenue margin, the biggest profit margin, where does the grocery store actually get its revenue from? The, the, the packaged goods that are on the shelf isn't where they're getting the revenue from. They're getting it out of bakery, flowers. Um, they're getting it out of fresh meats. They're getting it to some degree out of fresh vegetables. So. Right. So the margin of where the sales is involved is one in which that's different from that dynamic of going in and picking the box of cereal off the shelf or even taking the can or the, the, the uh, container of milk out of the dairy area, sticking it in the cart and going down the, the aisle and scanning it and leaving. The, the, the main part of it from the retail revenue mix is coming out of those ancillary services and that's going to be much more integrated into one where there's actually people. Now, okay. having said all of that, is this something that is interesting that Amazon is doing? I think from an Amazon standpoint, and they're not stupid people, I think it's one where that is giving them a sense of operational balance, cash right. flow balance. Um, the other thing we have to remember is that Amazon is not the company that's making the products that it's selling online. All they are is a distribution center. Right, yeah. So those products and those st the statistics on that are amazing. Almost 70% of Amazon products actually come out of China. Right, yeah. Almost 70% of the products sold on Amazon. Now this is everything from what we wear to the watches they sell to the video and everything else. You know, it's coming out of China and, and now we're seeing that those 
quote vendors, those independent um, sellers, if you will, mm -hmm. they are having to find alternatives in that mix. They're having to go and raise prices. So bottom line is the whole wonderful thrill of Amazon, it's almost like going on that wonderful roller coaster ride. You get that thrill after you go down the first big dip in the roller coaster. After that, there's bumps and there's some climbs along the way to right. eventually it slowed down, right? Yeah. Amazon, Amazon made literally billions <laughs> in terms of its initial startup in the innovation phase. That's fabulous to see that. Now they're in, now they're at that level, just like millennials. Millennials are now in a, in a situation where they're having to live with the day-to-day. -day. And yeah. Amazon is yeah. experiencing that too. Well, I wonder, you know, we were chatting a little bit, you know, a couple of days ago about your experience with um, what Pris is it called Prisma uh, Prism. or Prism. Yeah, Prism kind of socioeconomic data and, and that kind of thing and, and how you were. Um, well, I think you combined that with some maybe some medical data like a while back. But I just wonder with your experience with data, how could Amazon use our purchasing history to maybe influence where their new stores are going to go? I mean, I wonder, do you think that, is that a part of the equation? Oh, it's totally, it's totally yeah. part of the equation. I mean, Amazon is, is very smart. Um, I think I was sharing with you an example of where I had worked with Party City. And within that mix, for the most part, they as an organization had, had a whole wide variety of products and they had a distribution model that they had perfected for the stores. And if you think of when they started expansion and development, it was a store catering to families with young kids. And mm -hmm. as the kids went through their teens, unfortunately, as, as any brand grows, not only, only do they end up expanding into neighborhoods that are different from where they initially went, the neighborhood is a constantly, it's in constant motion. Right. A neighborhood yeah. great area isn't stagnant. It's constantly in evolution. So what might have been family neighborhoods 10 years ago, some of those kids are now gone off to college and got a surge of empty nesters. So that all being said, right. that was where, that was where a, a retailer like Party City had to sit back and say, well, we need to go and we need to look at what are those neighborhood groups? What are those different lifestyle groups? What's the purchase behavior? What's motivating and driving? And you're absolutely correct. Prism happened to be the first system in the United States that looked at the marketplace, the consumer in the marketplace by saying, hey, demographics are nice, but let's look more holistically at audience segments yeah. and basing that upon the geography of neighborhoods allowed them to be able to plot those and geographically look at those within retail trade areas, which becomes really key. Yeah, I, I heard a story about a sporting good um, department chain, this was years ago, that they did a lot of market research and they ended up deciding to use more colors that were based on the local sports teams nearby, like the high schools and the colleges and stuff like that. And then they yep. saw their sales like increase like dramatically. You yes. know? And it's because people, you know, want to identify with things around them. You know, we termed that a BGO, a blinding glimpse of the obvious. Right. And, and that's a great example of that. That's correct. But yeah. I will go back and say, and this, this system that was developed was developed in the late 1970s. The mm -hmm. first brand using it in the United States, I'm in Atlanta, and it's right in my backyard, is Coca-Cola. They used it for the rollout of Diet Coke. Right. So it started out in consumer packaged goods. I used it with a variety of consumer packaged goods brands. 
in my background. But, but that all being said, I think that neighborhoods are a critical driver, even when we look at generational groups. If you take millennials, for example, there are millennials, God love them, still living in neighborhoods where there are very few children. There are also millennials, very high income millennials doing very well in their professions and their careers that are living in high income kids' neighborhoods. There's yeah. also those out in the middle of suburbia expansion where there may not be anything for the local area. And God love them out there, you know, the retail becomes a community gathering point. So when we look at when we look at the marketplace and we're able to go in and look at these different segments, and right now at least that system, Prism, allows us to look at the United States in 68 different individual lifestyle groups. So that gives us 68 different lens, if you will, to go and observe behavior, observe, furthermore, the ability to geographically target them. So going back to supermarkets, I do even now today believe that, that what we're seeing and happening in a Walmart model, even in some of the Amazon models, where it's that large square footage um, that George had shared mm -hmm. earlier, in the conversation, I do think that the smaller sized neighborhood grocery stores are gonna come back. Why? Because they can be much more niche targeted. Why? Because it's a much more manageable distribution mix that can be conducted there. And so those, those are going to be coming back, I think, in more of a surge than what we have seen even before what we're going through with the, with the virus. Okay, okay. George, can you, can you tell us a little bit about some of the brands that have closed recently? Because um, I know we do a lot of stuff where we're tracking dead deals in the platform. Um, and then um, while George is talking, Mark, if you could think about just some of these brands that he's going to mention and about how, how could have they have done differently? And you touched on this just a second ago, but what could they have done differently or what could brands in that position now, kind of like natural grocers, smaller natural grocers, um, organic grocers, you know, what could they be doing differently? Uh, George, if you want to start. Yeah, so recently at the start of this year of 2020, um, I guess uh, Lucky's Market abruptly announced that they are going to close off, I think they had 50-ish, 50 give or take existing locations and they were gonna close just about all of them. I wanna say it was what, 40 or so of them that they were gonna close, um, pretty much all of them in Florida. I think they had 20 or 21 locations in the state of Florida alone. And that actually was the, the issue with Lucky's is they were invested in by Kroger. Kroger invested 40% in them and or bought 40% of them. And with the stipulation that they must try and grow in Florida to compete against Publix. And you just can't do that <clears throat> very easily. And they learned that the hard way. So basically Publix crushed Lucky's in Florida. Um, and Lucky's, because of that decision to try to focus on the state of Florida, ended up having to basically file for bankruptcy. And the same thing actually happened not, I mean, soon thereafter with uh, Earth Fair, another very similar uh, organic style store. Um, 
they had to announce that they were going under and the general consensus is that their um, investors wanted to grow too fast and they also were trying to focus on Florida and that's just uh, again very difficult to do because of Publix um, and Publix years ago they dabbled with an organic smaller square footage type space called a Greenwise Market that they had around for not very long it went away but with this current fad of those types of stores they tried to bring it back but with the failures of Earth Fair and Lucky's we've recently seen some strong rumors that they're going to um, shut down all all future Greenwise developments they had about I don't have the numbers in front of me but I, I think they had 10 or so that were under construction right believe they're going to move forward and, and, and build those out, but they're not going to uh, do any more beyond that just because I think they saw what happened uh, with Earth Fair and Lucky's and they're just going in a different direction. And some of those look, some of those Greenwise locations were right across the street from like a regular Publix, right? That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, so Mark, if, it, and I'm not sure if you're working with any grocers now, but if I'm say that I'm like a, a fresh market or natural grocers or who else, George, who would be another good example of a Lucky's type store out there? Um, what, what were the ones you said before? Uh, fresh market and uh, natural grocers. Um, think of who else is kind of left in that space. Who, who else is left in that space and what, you know, what should they be doing differently to kind of compete better in that space? Well, as, you're, as you all have been sharing that, I think a couple, couple images came up in my mind. I happen to have a farmhouse that's about 100 miles east of where I'm sitting right now in the heart of Atlanta in Athens, Georgia. And whether it's Athens or Austin, those two cities became marvelously successful with independent music production, okay? If right. you think, and, 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 and as you're going through that process of think, talking about brands like Lucky's, um, Fresh Market, uh, our friends up in Asheville that just went, went belly up, mm -hmm. um, you're thinking of those within the boxed variety of a store that decided all of a sudden that it was no longer an independent store, it was actually a small, quote, grocery store chain. Right. And he asked the fundamental question, where are farmers markets that again, just like independent music, indie music, what are, where, what, where are farmers markets? Well, they continue to be a rage. They continue right. to pop up, whether it is, it's in suburbia or urban centers or on wall street, no pun intended. I mean, the farmers markets are doing great. So, so one more illustration and I'll put it, I'll anchor it directly with your question. One of the clients that we worked extensively, and I won't, I won't divulge their brand name, but they happened to be in the Southeast and they owned a network of about six different regional banks. Right. And they brought our company in to do strategic assessment of these individual brands. And those individual brands had tremendous value and meaning. If you think about banking, even now, within the, the, the midst of where we are today, with the pandemic, I mean, banks, they're all national. 
they're all all great large banks, whether it is SunTrust, soon to be truest in the South, or Wells Fargo, or Bank of America, these national, national mega brands. So, so at that point in time, working with this financial client, those independent brands offered the consumers a competitive point of difference. Unfortunately, given wonderful technology today, and God love all of those that, that major in it in, uh, in colleges, they come up and they sit there and they look at accounting numbers and say, oh, look at how much more efficient we can be if it was all one brand and we can save money in terms of this individual branding and printing here and so on. So right. what they did is they consolidated. When they consolidated, the bank is no longer an independent brand. So when you're putting it in the context of like a Lucky's or our friends up in Asheville, if they had brought me in as a consultant, I would have said to them immediately, what the hell is your brand experience that you're conveying? Right, you are yeah. an independent mom and shop, natural grocery that is neighborhood driven and locally based. And that is a competitive point of difference. Right. When you start promoting yourself that we have 84 locations and all oh, we're in this market and this market and this market. When you go down that journey route, unfortunately in the process flow, you're going to end up in the consumer perception level, it's just being another grocery store. So right. to me, yeah. what has to happen going future forward is, I still say neighborhood grocery stores and supermarkets, just like the independent, the indie farmers markets, there is a niche opportunity there. And I guess if I had to place my investment money today, I place much more investment in a, a effort to roll out more independent stores than I would online in grocery right. store sales. I yeah. think that the longer term investment or return is going to come from those that are in the neighborhoods that have a sense of locality and identity. And so, yes, I think lucky as a brand. And oh, look, one last thing. A lot of these stores went down the pathway of not that we're the local neighborhood and not that this is, this is coming from your local area. No, shoot, they were organic. And they were nutritionally better. Well, that's right. very nice. The large grocery stores were able to offer the same exact product at 20 to 30% lower cost. Right, yeah. So I, now, all of a sudden, not only did they position themselves the wrong way, they ended up in a situation where they could be bought out for what they were promoting themselves on. They could be bought out at a cheaper price point by a competitor down the road. So right. that's why stores like Lucky's, and the Asheville people went out of business. Fresh markets just hanging on at this point in time. And I, yeah. I, I, I wish the folks at Fresh Market all the wonderful success in the world, but I do think that they're at a point where it's going to be an interesting challenge to see how they, how they prosper in the next, say, nine months to a year and a half. Yeah, 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 yeah absolutely. But, but yeah, that, is, that's, that to me is what the component is. The, the overall concept of, of local and organic and holistic, those are all marvelous. Those are all wonderful. Add into that in the locality a sense of neighborhood identity that, that, that allows the local consumers in that neighborhood to have a sense of ownership. Mm -hmm. I mean, in, another, in the other category that I was talking about in financial, I mean, these enormous large banks, they're in big, big time trouble. And I'm saying it nicely. 
they're in big time trouble. However, in that same category, credit unions, credit unions are doing superb. Right, fact, yeah. Right up in the Wall Street Journal. The credit unions are the ones coming in with the lower mortgages and, mm -hmm. and bringing people in on the mortgage level. Why? Because at the big, large banks, you're nothing but a, quote, customer. Right. At the, at the, at the independent credit unions, you're a member. You have ownership. You're yeah. part of it. You're not just there going to the brand and knocking on the door or trying to drive through the drive through You're part of that that local community, that sense of belonging. And right. so that is where, and sometimes, trust me, trust me, a lot of business and a lot of the CEOs that I have interacted with and so on in the past think parts of what I say is just absolute way out nuts. And that's fine. All the more power to them. I have many, many phone calls. Even, even since Monday, I will simply say, I don't care if they're local community politicians, or if they're large corporations, right. I have been getting some interesting phone calls asking fundamental questions about the future, very oriented around what we've just been talking about. Interesting. Very interesting. Very cool, Mark. So, Mark, being familiar with Athens, um, as you know, there was a very prosperous earth fair right there in Five Points. Right in Five Points, correct. That, yeah, that the community just absolutely loved. Um, so you're saying that <clears throat> Earth Fair kind of steered away from that community feel and basically went corporate trying to expand too fast. Is, is that, am I correct in saying that? That Earth Fair faced a number of challenges. <laughs> I think one of, one of the more interesting challenges that they faced was the gentrification of the neighborhood. Yeah. So, so the culture group that was there when Earth Fair first opened up, and let's just say that that might be a more bohemian cultural group, combined with the baby boomers that are peace, love, harmony, let's go back to the 60s rock and roll, mm -hmm. there, were, there were elements of that that were in that neighborhood. That neighborhood in Athens, where if we went back 10 years ago, you could still buy a three-bedroom, two-bath house in that neighborhood for probably less than $200,000. Today, that neighborhood area that was right around that Earth Fair is no different than where I'm sitting right smack in the middle of Buckhead here in Atlanta, where the average price of a home, you can't touch a home for less than $500,000 in that neighborhood now. Right. It's insane. So, 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 you know... God love it. It went from being an Earth Fair bohemian type of a neighborhood that it was serving to where the neighborhood around it transitioned right. to which it was not to say anything bad about Whole Foods, but it became sometimes what they will say, just like the Whole Foods used to be called the whole paycheck store. Yeah. yeah. The, the price point changed in those dynamics. And unfortunately, Earth Fair became a chain. Now, ask yourself the fundamental question. What takes place there in five points in terms of independent coffee houses? What takes place in that in terms of even the farmer's market? And those are still big drawing cards. So, mm -hmm. so the big question is, there is no question if we step back for a moment as strategists and say, okay, that neighborhood has gone through change. Is that the neighborhood location for another quote, organic independent grocery store, or is that the location for Publix? Right. right. Yeah, and so those, very, are good, those are good questions. It's, and as you know, Five Points is a very uh, unique 
neighborhood. Um, people are screaming for a Sprouts or Whole Foods or whatever, but the, the problem in, in that situation is that that store was 13,000 square feet. Yeah. So yes. yes, there's a lot more to it than just. Yes. Here in Atlanta, in the heart of Buckhead, where I'm sitting, there is, I can walk to it across the street. There is a two-story target where you take right. escalators up. So the target's big enough. And in the parking garage, the only way you can access this Publix is from the parking garage. There's no roadside, street-side access. So you have to go in the parking garage, and that's where the front of the Publix happens to be. And when you go in there, I think square footage-wise, that might be about 10,000 square feet. It's right. small. It huh. is a niche neighborhood Publix. That Publix... That Publix is doing super right now. Why? Because it's catering to the local neighborhood. The neighborhood goes there. The people know them. Um, they know they know the folks that are working there and vice versa. And so that dynamic, I think when I look at that and I look at the experiential level of what that brand is, I step back and say, okay, now we have to ask fundamental planning out next three, five years. Take what's happening now off the table ask yourself fundamentally what's going to happen the next three to five years we can't let go of the fact that we're going to have we're going to probably have a surge in millennials buying houses by the way they don't have houses to sell many of them because they've been leasing secondly right. there is no question we're going to see a price adjustment mm -hmm. versus a price drop we're going to see a price adjustment in housing and so, and where the housing that is affordable happens to be for the millennials is out in suburbia. So now right. all of a sudden we have to ask the question that I sometimes will, will ask in a client situation is, all right, you're going to march down the beat that everybody else is going down and build another large, um, you know, uh, regional grocery store that everybody else has and everybody else is offering or do you all of a sudden take the risk of being unique and niche target and come up with that grocery store that's the small square footage that is that these people quote can walk to mm -hmm. and so that that opens up a whole different different way of thinking and so i think it challenges it challenges the marketplace last thing i'll say on this is does technology get out of the mix no way in hell Technology has to stay in the mix mm -hmm. because distribution management is critical. If somebody's going to roll out, if it's going back to that bank, if that bank would have let those six independent brands exist, they'd have to use technology to build in financial affordability, financial smarts, if you will, right. in terms of the day-to-day -day operations. If the grocery store chain, let's take our wonderful folks at Lucky's, for example, if, if they had picked up the phone and called me and I went in and said, you guys are at Lucky are nuts doing what you're doing. And they would have said, hey, maybe you're right. And rethought and Lucky's breaks down the brand and lets it exist on a neighborhood level. Mm -hmm. There still is one in which distribution has to get managed. It's one in which there is a uniqueness to what the neighborhood is. And the way that that's going to work going future forward is going to be using technology and information to do that. Yep. Awesome. Very good. Very good. Um, 
Well, I, I just want to go ahead and this has been this has been fascinating and just wanted to thank um, George, thank thank you and, and Mark for for being on the podcast today. And uh, just wanted to say we actually just launched speaking of kind of technology and data, we just launched a new application today for people to find out if grocery delivery is available um, in their area. Um, you, you can put in an address and automatically see if uh, Ship, Instacart, um, Amazon, and Fresh Direct are available um, within your area. And uh, that application is at plangrocery.com slash find. And um, if you want to get in touch with George, his information is uh, basically you can email him at uh, george at plangrocery.com or fill out uh, the contact form um, on our website. And, uh, and Mark, if you could tell us just um, just, just kind of quickly, you know, just kind of tell us a little bit about your company and, and kind of how the best, the best way for people to reach you. Well, our best point of access is either directly to me via the email address mcoyman, that's M-K-O-O-Y-M-A-N at experiencediscovery.com or better yet, pick up the phone and call me. That's at 404-245-93. Seven, eight. The website is experiencediscovery.com. Okay. Uh, again, lastly, you know, we have the name experience because we do believe products and brands and services are not physical. They're experiential. Mm -hmm. And we use discovery in that name because the discovery of insight is what drives a brand within the competitive arena. And if you can take that insight and bring that to life, that's what's going to drive a brand forward. So that's what we're about. That's how to get in touch. And uh, we love working with clients. We love working with clients that are going through a process of challenge and change. And um, that's the best time to step back and say, okay, if this model hasn't been working, what's the model that's now going to work? Right. Awesome. Awesome. Very good. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. And we'll be sure to put all of your information in the show notes and, and, and all of that. And, um, and just want to say um, thanks again. Uh, this has been a, another edition of the On The Map podcast. And um, hope everyone stays safe out there. And uh, we'll have some information soon on the next podcast. Thank you again for listening to today's podcast. To email us your thoughts on today's conversation or suggestions for future podcasts, email us at pgr.com info at plannedgrocery.com.